Hello and welcome to the Armchair F1 podcast. My name is Cam Hall and over the coming weeks, months, years or however long you decide to stick with this podcast, I'll be bringing you all of the latest goings on in the dramatic world that is Formula One. All of the twists and turns on and off the track, all of the latest racing action, plus some of the going ons behind the scenes as well, whether that's driver lineups, our attempts, or I say me and my guest attempts at the latest technical wranglings with each car. And of course, the drama that is the F1 season as we go to the end of what has been so far a fantastic 2021 season, a season that has really delivered on so many people's expectations. And I think really given a lot of optimism as we have the big regulation changes next year, a potential shakeup of the field. If this season, how close it has been, is just a little microcosm of what we can expect going forward well. There's a lot to be excited about and there's a lot to be excited about with this podcast going forward. We'll be able to bring you one or two episodes a week, reviewing each race as it comes, all of the biggest action from each part of the weekend, all of the stories that have been dominating the headlines, plus things to look out for in the future as we go from that. And then also, hopefully some little special bonus episodes as well. Of course, a lot of things coming up in the next month, we have the Schumacher movie coming out on Netflix, which I am personally really looking forward to. Of course, Netflix always brings us a series of Drive to Survive every year. I often have a lot of things to say about that. And I'm sure that there will be an episode in March when the series comes out devoted to my ramblings about Drive to Survive. But enough said about that so far. Of course, the Armchair F1 podcast will, as I said, hopefully be coming out with one or two new episodes per week and hopefully you'll be sticking along for the ride and i really appreciate your support all our social media is on the description please like follow subscribe across all of our social media platforms to keep up to date with the latest content that we're going to be pushing out i'm really looking forward to bringing you what was for many people obviously they know formula one was really the first passion of mine it was something i had i've been watching since i was eight years old And really, it's the one thing I've always really wanted to talk about on now. I've really wanted to dedicate myself to. And so here I am. This is very much a little bit of my childhood dream of just being able to freely talk about F1 and have the world hear what I think about it being put out on air. Every week on the Armchair F1 podcast, we'll be joined by a guest slash guest potentially in the future talking with me about some of the latest news in Formula One. And today I'm joined by one of my best mates. Um, from back at school and someone with a name very appropriate um, for a racing car. Of course, there was an old children's show nicknamed Rory the Racing Car. And so in that regard, I'd like to introduce Rory Norris. Hello, thank you very much for having me. And uh, it's ironic that you mentioned the racing car nickname as that is a name which tormented me through much of the time that we knew each other in school. (laughs) So uh, I'm very much looking forward for that to make a comeback. Uh, I've not had to deal with that for a number of years now. I look forward to crying my eyes out in my room uh, at 1am in the future. This is this is not me trying to bring all the skeletons out the closet or anything, but it was it was it was it pretty much daily. Oh, it was endemic. It was uh, from the time it came out, probably around uh, 2005, six, when I was in junior school. And people quickly realized that it was of paramount importance that this would be the funniest thing to ever happen and to never, ever let me forget about it. So um, for my, many of my years, that was what I was I was called, uh, what I was tormented with. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to that being the case on this podcast now. Well, Rory, it's fair to say you chose your friends well. Of course, as I'm going to do with every new guest we have on the program, a little bit of an introduction to your kind of personal experience of F1. That's something obviously we really want to hear about, sort of how you got into F1, how you have really found following it. What's the real main things that have grabbed you since you started watching it? So I guess there's three questions that really get into that. So firstly, Rory, my favourite driver, Lewis Hamilton, he is arguably one of the greatest drivers of all time someone who I really grew up watching Lewis Hamilton. He was someone I really connected with. I still have a painting of Lewis Hamilton from 2008, one of, I think, 295 of him done in the world of this particular picture. Still in my room, still framed. It's going to be with me for life. So, yeah, Lewis Hamilton was someone I've very much grown up with. He's been my favourite driver. What about yourself, Rory? Who is your favourite driver? So when you asked me this question in the preliminary conversations before this podcast, I I thought there was an immediate answer. 
and that man is George Russell. Uh, coming in, being a fan in the last few years, we've very much watched his ascendancy, uh, being in arguably the worst machine on the track in all the years, possibly bar this year, that he's been racing on a Formula One grid. Uh, however, he's done constantly amazing things with what he's been given. That is a name that I questioned about a lot. However, when I thought deeper, I thought if I was going to introduce someone who's never watched F1 before to the sport and I was going to get them invested in a driver, then there's really only one name that grows to my mind, and that is the Frenchman Pierre Gasly. Ooh. The fairy tale story of F1, obviously a very highly rated junior through the Red Bull Academy, was promoted into Toro Rosso shortly after chosen as the successor to Daniel Ricciardo, whereupon, I mean, it's notorious, his uh, slow start, the fact that they uh, maybe didn't adapt to the car as well as Christian Horner and the Red Bull uh, alliance may have hoped he would, his controversial uh, dethronement halfway through the season, the favor of Alex Albon going back to Toro Rosso. But since then, he's been only on the up and up in the Alpha Tauri team and the Toro Rosso team. He's done, again, amazing things with the machinery he's been given. In a sister team, sometimes he's looked like the second best Red Bull driver on the grid behind Max Verstappen. And I think that looking at how his career was at such a low that day after his he was taken out of uh, Red Bull, uh, put back in Toro Rosso, of course, had press swarming all around. And I think the way that he's managed to pick himself back up and become really an established top top seven or eight driver in F1 is absolutely incredible. Yeah, Pierre Gasly's redemption arc is something Netflix would be proud of, almost. <laughs> it's, something, it's something the producers of Drive to Survive, I think, would almost, almost would have planned for. It's, it's something I think a driver who was, I think, promoted too early into the Red Bull team taken out too early from the Red Bull team and now seemingly having been given that environment at Alpha Tauri he has really been showing his true colors and he is a driver with a lot of potential going forward and someone who I think is certainly deserving of a seat at the top I guess the big question is whether he does get that you're not the only one with that opinion um Joe Spagnoli a raw alumni someone who I've spoken to a lot about Formula One is someone again very passionate about Pierre Gasly so I think there's quite a little club forming for Pierre Gasly in the future. I think it'll be very, very interesting to see in the coming years whether we're talking about him in a top team, in a Red Bull, in a Mercedes. Let's move on to your favourite team now. Of course, I grew up with Lewis Hamilton in the McLaren. I've always had a soft spot for them, but I, I, I quite like the dynamic at McLaren at the moment, in particular with Zach Brown, really, I think, providing that really strong public face for the team, I think really softening the image. Andreas Seidel, I think, really bringing a lot more discipline into McLaren, allowing them to rise again up to the top. But again, really fitting in with that more fun image publicly. And I think the driver lineups as well. I think Lando Norris, I think, has been a revelation in terms of the profile that he has had both on and off the track. And I think just the way, I think, firstly, his partnership with Carlos Sainz and now obviously seeing him with Daniel Ricciardo as well. Maybe not the same partnership, but certainly very fitting in that image, I think, is very much a fan's team, a fan favourite. No wonder they're my favourite team. Rory, what about yourself? Now, I'm going to go for more of an, I think, what will be an unpopular pick. Uh, but considering this, again, I did think about McLaren. Again, just like you, I grew up, Lewis Hamilton in the silver, chrome silver and red McLaren was the iconic car back in the day. Uh, again, I like the underdog story, how they, you know, in the mid-2010s, being one of the worst cars in the grid, and then under the the tutelage of Zach Brown and Seidel have recently grown back into the race and have become you know, a, a real force in the upper midfield. However, again, if I'm thinking F1, and for some reason, and I think this is going to be unpopular again, the first car that pops into my head is the navy blue with the red bull on the side. The only force stronger than Lewis Hamilton when I was growing up with F1 was Sebastian Vettel in a red bull car. Obviously, at the start of the 2010s, they were the team to beat. And though in recent times they haven't found as much success, I think that their operating model is absolutely fascinating. I think whereas some teams may play to the politics of driver lineups, uh, you know, maybe keeping a driver on for the sake of keeping high spirits, I think Red Bull, especially in the last five years, have displayed a, a certain ruthlessness Again, maybe sometimes not being correct in their ruthlessness, maybe sometimes making decisions that, you know, would turn out later to be possibly the wrong decisions. 
But I think under Christian Horner, who clearly has, has shown that he's willing to do whatever it takes to put his team in the, in the best position to win and he's not willing to wait around for results, I think is a very intriguing dynamic in, in modern F1. And I really do hope that as, you know, for the last few years, they've been the only team really capable of, of, of mounting a challenge to Mercedes. And, I, you know, this year we've got what we wanted. There's finally a two-horse race at the, mid, at the midpoint of the season. And I think it's just a fascinating way of how they developed from not even being a car brand, having nothing to do with that and becoming an established force in F1. I've got to ask you, Rory, who do you think is more ruthless, Red Bull with the, their young drivers or Henry VIII with his wives? Well, I mean, you can say they both took a lot of the same principles forward in the way they've chosen their their suitors, if you will. Uh, again, as soon as our boy Henry VIII knew that he wasn't going to get especially what he what he wished from the arrangement, he cut it short, just as Christian Horner does. Uh, so I think he's definitely taken, taken a leaf out of his book in that respect. Of course, we're not at all advocating executing your wives, but is this the start of a new era of dominance? Maybe from this year, maybe... With the new regulations as well, Red Bull will be out front. Max Verstappen will be winning every championship next year. Now, that that would be an exciting prospect for a driver who's certainly been talked of as a future world champion for many years now. But one last question, Rory, before we go on to talk a bit more about Max Verstappen. Um, of course, we've done favourite driver. We've done favourite team. Favourite race. Mine for... I know maybe the very conventional one, but it was it's a race that sticks in my head. I remember watching it when I was 10 years old and just sitting there mesmerized, even though there was a massive two hour rain delay in the middle that really should have turned me off. Just being gripped by all of just the amazing racing, the changeable conditions and most importantly, the complete redemption arc that Jensen Button had starting the race in the midfield, crashing with his teammate, getting a drive through penalty for speeding having to change from intermediates to wet tyres to put back down into the midfield after the restart, a crash with Fernando Alonso, leaving him with a puncture and last going on to win the race with an overtake at turn six on Sebastian Vettel on the final lap. Of course, I'm talking about Canada 2011, the craziest race ever, but my favourite that I have ever watched. And certainly a very, I think a very well-deserved and very fruitful late night, even if I did get into school the next day absolutely exhausted rory what is your favorite race okay again i'm going on conventional and for this one cam i'm going to put you into, into a scenario so i want you to transport yourself to exeter in my shoes okay. so it's a it's a sunday you're about four weeks behind on your uni work so you decide I, I to can go. definitely empathize with that one. Yep, absolutely. I, I know you can. <laughs> uh, so you decide to go into campus, use one of those study spaces, get some reading done and catch up. That day happens to coincide with, and I would give you all the money in my bank account if you could predict what race I'm about to say. But I'm thinking, looking at what was in, I'm thinking this would have been the second half of last year. Because there were some amazing races at the second half of 2020. And there was one that really stuck out. And that, to me, was Sakia. You would be incorrect, Cam. I've got written in my notes. I've got two races and Sakia is one of them. But I've decided on, on merit of pure enjoyment levels. I'm going to go with the 2020 Turkey Grand Prix. That was where... a classic. I have to give you that. I, I can't. Was... I, I, should, I should have thought of that. That didn't even come into my head. But that was a classic. It was obviously Lance Stroll, a much maligned F1 driver going into this race, picking up a pole position due to the change of weather conditions in qualifying the day before, managing to defend that first place position for a great deal of the race before losing out on the inevitable force that is Lewis Hamilton. And I mean, the, what I remember from this race most is that every single time I'd look up from my reading, another car would have spun off the track and there'd be another change <laughs> to the driving to, to the order. And in my eyes, there was not a dull lap on that race. A lot of cars, you know, not finishing, but causing one of the most entertaining races in wet conditions that I've seen. It was a fantastic race. Of course, Lewis Hamilton, that was the day he won his seventh world championship. And I certainly remember just watching that, just being mesmerized. I think firstly, by just how quickly he was extending his gap at the front. Secondly, how long Sergio Perez was managing to drag those tires out for. So if Sergio Perez, if there's an unwritten rule in Formula One, if you need a man to drive a car 
for miles on end to keep the tires running. If, 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 if that is what will save your life, you get Sergio Perez to do it. And then also, I actually felt quite sad for Lance Stroll. I kind of, I wanted him to win the race. I really did. By, was... by the end of it, like looking at um, the way that he was reacting after he won pole, I've never seen him so emotional and, and happy you know he's quite he keeps quite a quite a droll kind of uh, media presence besides that but you could tell he was really really gassed with it Rory it's great to have you on the program today now of course when we're talking about a new podcast and a lot of people would have or a lot of people would have been expecting us to launch before the start of the season that's the most logical time to do things but in Formula One there's a lot of drivers who've actually made their debuts in Belgium some have gone on to have extremely successful Formula One careers as world champions in the midst. Some drivers, the less said, the better. I'm, of course, I'm hoping that the Armchair F1 podcast is one of those things that kind of falls into the more successful groups. Of course, as many drivers who started their careers in Belgium gone on to be two world, champ- two world champions from that list. Rory, can you name either of the world champions? Let's see. Um... Do I get clues? For Shall I give you the years of their debut? So give, one, give, give me the years of the debut. Was yeah. in 1952. Oh, another okay. was in 1991. 91. Oh, my, this this is around the period where my my knowledge gets fuzzy and I'm not. <laughs> um, all the years kind of meld into each other. So he was in a Jordan. He okay, qualified well, seventh <laughs> and retired after one lap. Now his performance impressed Flavio Briatore so much that he was signed up for Benetton for the next race after where he would stay with the team okay. for another five years. Right. And he may have won a couple of F1 World Championships with the team at the time as well. Yeah, he, he might have won a few races, mightn't he? The, uh, the legend that is the great Michael Schumacher. Absolutely. Because Michael Schumacher's debut, one of, <laughs> one of much myth and legend in many ways. Of course, many people really had a lot of high hopes for Schumacher. He'd been a budding young driver for Mercedes. He comes to Spa with only at Spa because um, the original driver Bertrand Gasho in the Jordan was serving prison time um, for assaulting a taxi driver at the time. And so from that, we go into this kind of the Michael Schumacher making his career, being put into the Benetton and then starting the amazing career that he goes on to has. He, w- he would win um, his debut race at Spa the year after. He has a real magic touch at Spa, Michael Schumacher. It's a track he has liked over the years but yes he was a driver who made his debut in 1991 1952 was britain's first formula one world champion mike hawthorne made his debut at that grand prix rather unspectacular shall we say he qualified about sixth or seventh and finished the race in fourth he'd go on to be world champion in 1958 britain's first formula one world champion could have had a lot more potentially of course sadly died in a road accident the following january but of course a very much a young driver at the time, very exciting, making his debut in Spa. Now, of course, there are some drivers um, that we wouldn't want to talk about necessarily on this list. Andre Lotterer, shall we Shall we reminisce over his Formula One debut? So in 2014, Andre Lotterer made his debut for Caterham. He qualified the car in 21st. Of course, the car was the slowest on the grid at the time. So he qualified 21st of 22nd, retired after one lap, of the race with an electrical problem. Rory, why did he not race again in Formula One after that Grand Prix? Is this going to be some kind of devious uh, trick question? It is uh, the biggest... All I will say is that this is the biggest banter moment in Formula One, I think, that I have ever seen. Uh, is there something insane? Like, they, they demoted him based on the one race performance. A real Christian Horner-esque move. <laughs> I mean, Cyril Beatable was the head of Caterham at the time. So it could have been some wizardry like that. No, it's, it's even better than that. So Andre Lotterer um, turned around to Caterham. He had a contract to do more races and he was bringing the money in. He turned around to Cyril and to the team and basically said that your car is too slow. I'm not going to drive for you again. Now, that is allegedly what happened. That's, I think, the most popular story. I, I, I just think that is brilliant. I feel that you get your chance to race in Formula One. This is something that he'd been waiting for for so many years. He turns around and then just says, uh, do you know what? It's not for me. That's you know, this car's too slow. I'm not getting I'm not getting what I want out of it. That is 
That, that is incredible. And for, somehow that's the first time I'm hearing of that. I, I must not have seen the, the behind the scenes are, are on that race, but that is, again, after all the drivers that try and fail to get to F1, to, to get there finally and, and turn your back on it because the car's too slow is just, goodness gracious me. Of course, when it comes to successful debuts in Belgium, I guess there is nothing more that this show would want to embody than Esteban Ocon. Now, admittedly, the debut was not the best in the world. He was driving the Manor, this one of the slowest cars on the grid in 2016, qualified in 19th, finished the race in 16th. But of course, Esteban Ocon, again, the last person to make his debut in Spa, left the team at the end of the season, joined Force India, then went on to Alpine, in 2021, I'd say things have turned out pretty good for Ocon. Now the latest driver to join the F1 Witness Club. And I, I feel I feel that's I'd hope that's a nice little way for our show to turn down. If may if you know things are just starting off slowly, getting things going, and then you know, we become a race winner five years down the line. I'll take that. Of course, Esteban Ocon, the latest driver to win in Formula One, and one of a few fair few drivers to register race wins this season. Of course, two of the drivers most prolific in that Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen. I guess let's move on now to looking more widely at the state of the championship. And we come into the Belgian Grand Prix this weekend with Lewis Hamilton on 195 points from the first 11 races, Max Verstappen on 187 points from the first 11 races. In terms of how many races there are to go, the calendar is still not fully confirmed, but estimating at least 10 Potentially 12 races is the target the FIA have. So very much halfway through the season at the moment. And it's a battle out front that has really ebbed and flowed. There have been so many twists and turns from Lewis Hamilton pulling off the strategy in the first race to hold off Verstappen and win to nearly binning it in the wall in Imola and giving Verstappen a massive advantage, recovering to second place. Lewis seemingly then going ahead and taking out an early lead in the championship before Verstappen goes on a run from Monaco. Both drivers not scoring points in Baku. Lewis Hamilton potentially having blowing an opportunity to go nearly a race win ahead, but accidentally leaving the magic button on from the start there. And then Verstappen going on a run, seeing him win in France, both races in Austria, seemingly out of touch, 32 points ahead in the championship he was when he left when he went to Silverstone. But now in the next two races, firstly, that dramatic crash at Cops, of which Lewis Hamilton punts Max Verstappen off the track. Lewis Hamilton gets a 10-second penalty, manages to recover to win the race and go to small distance behind Verstappen in the championship. And then, of course, that race in Hungary where carnage at turn one puts Max Verstappen off the track, leaves him at the back, and then Lewis Hamilton managed to to scythe his way through the field, originally to third, then to second when Vettel was disqualified. It could have been first if it wasn't for some handy defending from Fernando Alonso. I guess the question looking now into Belgium is Lewis Hamilton seems to have arrested that momentum that was going Verstappen's way. So has Lewis got the momentum on his side now or has he just been riding his luck? Are Red Bull still the team to beat? I'd say very much that Max Verstappen, especially in the last two rounds, has been suffering from a spell of bad luck. Um, Obviously, the incident at Silverstone, which was really quite you know, gruesome to see almost. And no one likes to see a a crash with that kind of impact. And looking at the post-crash radio feed from Verstappen, which was almost eerie uh, with how how heavy that was. And obviously the damage to his car in Hungary, which basically rendered any chance of him finishing, you know, with a decent amount of points, basically, you know, not applicable. Um, I do think that Lewis Hamilton is the driver with the momentum going into the next round at Spa. But I would really, really not count out Max Verstappen because, as we will know, a Max Verstappen who is angry is a Max Verstappen who gets overtakes and gets results. Coming into this, you know, having had at one point a fairly substantial lead over Lewis Hamilton in the championship, now having lost that, you know, there's been a lot of whispers about the Red Bull development, how they're going to carry on developing their car for the 2021 season. And I think this is do or die from now. And we know Max Verstappen is a driver with the balls and the courage to make it work. I feel like Max Verstappen coming into this race, I feel he needs, he's the driver who needs the result just because of the bad luck he's had in the last couple of races. I think it's really interesting that Mercedes obviously go to Silverstone. They bring that update specifically targeting the slow straight line speed that they've been having 
earlier on, particularly in France and Austria, the two races where I think Mercedes were really starting to get found out. They bring those upgrades, they come, then start to have the faster car again. And for Verstappen, who seemingly have having had everything his way, his couple of bad results and Lewis being able to maximise the advantage out of that really blew the wind in his sails very much. And there was really a change over the summer break. Red Bull's kind of bullshy confidence at the start of July. By the time we're getting down nearly two months later, that confidence seems to have gone. Red Bull seemed to be more bullshy, but more in that sort of that fighting attitude that we've got to come back. We've got to go back at Mercedes. And yeah, I think it's interesting because for Lewis Hamilton, he's he's really made his challenge in the second half of the season. Most of his championships, we've seen Lewis really have a solid first half and then go out and absolutely storm the second half of the season, go on a run of races that puts him way out ahead of his rivals. And in the end, it's the deficiencies that other teams have. The two championships against Sebastian Vettel really embodying that. Ferrari starting to have issues internally, technical problems, Sebastian Vettel making a few mistakes himself that really just solidifies that advantage that Lewis Hamilton has got. I guess, do you think Lewis Hamilton can have the same thing again this season? Do you think he's going to have to rely upon his typically fast second half of the season? Because, of course, if there's one thing that Red Bull are renowned for, it's their ability to outdevelop teams throughout the season. I think the best way that I can put it is this, is that Lewis Hamilton is the closest thing that we will ever have to an F1 driver cyborg in that his mistakes, when they do come, are so rare. And you just simply, in, in most races with most teams, you can count on every now and then the driver will make a mistake. Sometimes you'll be able to go up the board, get a few more points. I think that's a given. Most teams will be like, you know, sometimes the luck isn't on their side and they'll do that. With Lewis Hamilton, you really can't count on that. So in that respect, I think Red Bull are going to have to really, really pull out all the stops to try and stop this. Because as you say, he has meteoric rises during the second half of the season. That's basically his thing. And I think I, I would really, really like to say that I believe in Red Bull and their ability to keep on challenging at the top. But I've said that angry Max Verstappen is a ruthless driver. Cool Lewis Hamilton is just as ruthless as that. And I think that is a real force to be reckoned with and something that I'm just so excited to see how it develops going into the season because realistically, who knows how it's going to go. I, I personally would never bet against Lewis Hamilton, but it's going to be very interesting to see if Red Bull can compete. This is, I think, without doubt, the closest title fight we've had since 2016, since the Hamilton-Rosberg, those brilliant title fights that we retreated to there. And also, most importantly, the closest title fight we've had between two drivers from different teams since all the way back in 2012 and the unpredictable drama of that season, Vettel and Alonso coming out front. And it seems that with Hamilton and Verstappen, they very much made their claim at the start of the season. They have been the dominant two throughout. Do you think we are going to the wire? I think it's going to the wire. I think by mid-season, usually you know the general pecking order of how F1 seasons are going to finish. With, with a few exceptions, obviously, Hamilton, Rosberg, who even could have told that even to the final day. But I think right now it's such a, a race at the top. And I think that barring, you know, especially, you know, crazy conditions like, I mean, Red Bull development just completely failing or Hamilton becoming just completely un-Hamilton-esque and, and making a series of mistakes under the pressure. I think it's going down to the wire. I think it will be one of the last three rounds of the season will decide it. And I really do hope it's the final one because we've not had excitement like that in a while. I mean, we've not had excitement at Abu Dhabi full stop in the last few years. And if that's the way to make racing there exciting, I'll take it. Let's move on now to my driver of the season who is fighting with the second drivers at Mercedes. Of course, Valtteri Bottas on 108 points. Sergio Perez, Max Verstappen's Red Bull teammate on 104. Just ahead of them, though, Lando Norris on 113 points in the McLaren. He's finished outside of the top five in the 11 races we've had so far twice, finishing eighth in Spain, and then the retirement through absolutely no fault of his own at the Hungara ring. Lando Norris seems to have, we've always known he's been a good driver. He's been someone who's been talked up for so many years, but this season he seems to have completely 
gone off the charts, gone completely meteoric rise for Lando Norris, just in terms of his consistency, in terms of the speed he's showing in the way that he is completely beaten Daniel Ricciardo in the, in the comparison between the two drivers hands down at the moment. I don't think Daniel Ricciardo expected to, I don't know if it's the fact that he's still struggling in that car, but he, no one expected him to get, be getting so resoundly beaten by Lando Norris week in, week out. Now, my question, Rory, is this what we've seen from Lando Norris in the first half of the season? Do you think this is just a little bit of a peak from him and we're going to see him potentially fall back down in the second half of the season? Can he keep this up? Can he potentially finish ahead of both Bottas and Perez this year? From what we've seen in the first half of the season, I wouldn't say there's any evidence to the contrary. Um, I think, again, Lando Norris, the last few seasons, has looked like he's establishing himself. He's gotten better and better each season, you know, looking at his points totals from when he first joined McLaren, he's been on the up and up this season, taking a larger step than many people would have anticipated. And as you say, possibly the the, the foil of Daniel Ricciardo, who has struggled in the car. I would really, really love to see him keep challenging for those top five spaces. I think the, the sort of mid, uh, mid-table battle of him, Bottas and Perez has been a very you know, very underrated part of the season so far. Something that's not much talked about uh, other than, you know, the the individual plaudits coming Lando Norris's way. I think that the McLaren as a car is, you know, definitely on par with uh, Ferrari, definitely on par and above Aston Martin and Alfa Tauri, the two other midfield teams that you'd, you'd put them with. I think that as long as he can keep a cool head on his shoulders and keep demonstrating some of the absolutely admirable composure that he has in the start of the season, I think that I think he could make a real statement. And I think that, you know, something like that, it's it really is a precursor possibly to the future. If McLaren can continue developing as they have under Zach Brown and Seidel, maybe we might see another introduction of McLaren as a top team. That is, that is really what McLaren want. Of course, we've seen so many great cars from McLaren over the years. They've been a team that have been historically at the forefront, whether you think of the MP44 that dominated the 1988 season, whether you think of some of the fantastic cars that Adrian Newey built in the late 90s, or indeed some of the cars at the end of the 2000s going into the start of the 2010s before before the McLaren part Honda partnership that I think the less said about the better but obviously you said McLaren have been rising since the late 2010s since 2019 in particular with Brown and Seidel very much at the top with the Renault engine deal moving away from Honda and then realizing a lot of the deficiencies in their own car and looking ahead to 2022 I think the only thing that's going to count against Lando Norris I think it he, I think, is going to continue his form. I think he's turned a real corner this season in a way that Max Verstappen did in 2018 after a dodgy start to that season. He's not fallen from the high standards that he was going into by the end of that season. They've maintained for the last three years and we've really seen him become that complete driver. I think Lando is moving towards that now. I think the only thing that could stop him in the fight with um, Bottas and Perez is do McLaren potentially stop all development on the car and just move to 2022 saying we want to be a top team we've got to put all our resources into that so we're going to sacrifice Lando in that sense that fight for third of course one thing they may want one reason they may want to keep putting money into the car of course their tight battle with Ferrari for third and the about 10 million dollars difference in prize money that that gets you McLaren and Ferrari come to Belgium both on 163 points Of course, from McLaren, the vast majority of those points have been coming from Lando Norris. For Ferrari, Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz around about the 80-point mark each. Both have had opportunities squandered. Both have taken opportunities that have come their way this season. Looking at that McLaren-Ferrari fight, I mean, firstly, it's great to see both of those teams coming back to the front after what has been a bit of a difficult couple of years for the both of them. Where do you think that's going to go in the second half of the season? Well, I think for two teams to be on equal points in uh, in third and fourth at this stage of the season is absolutely incredible. And, and it is a testament to how just interesting the racing has been this season. In terms of how I see it for the future, I think you really do just have to look at the individual contributions of each driver to the team. As you remarked upon, Ferrari have very much had their points split between Carlos Sainz and Charles Leclerc. 
whereas it is Lando Norris doing a lot of the footwork for McLaren. And for me, this can go one of two ways. Either this shows that the McLaren as a car is better than the Ferrari, and it's just simply a case of Daniel Ricciardo not settling in. You know, perhaps Daniel Ricciardo should be on more of an equal footing with Lando Norris if he could do a better job. Or the other way that it can go is that Lando Norris is outperforming the car, that Ferrari is clearly more balanced based on the fact that both their drivers are achieving the same thing, especially considering that it's Carlos Sainz's first year in the car as well, and the fact that given their previous cars over the last few years, who knows how easy of a car it is to get results out of despite it looking faster. So I think it really does depend on that. My gut instinct right now is that at times the McLaren, it looks on par almost with with Mercedes, sorry, and Red Bull. They've really formed almost their own bracket in how, how technically good the cars look during races. And that's why I put my money on them. If Daniel Ricciardo manages to, to pull his finger out in the last half of the season from what has been, and I think even he would admit this, a disappointing start to his McLaren career, I think they could definitely consolidate third. And you know that's been their clear motive for the whole season. Absolutely. I think I agree with you. I think on almost everything you've said there, I feel like McLaren have the third fastest car. I don't have any doubts about that. I think... Lando is potentially outperforming the car. I think definitely Ricardo is underperforming in it. His qualifying has been particularly poor. There's been far too many Q2 exits for Daniel Ricardo. He needs to stop that because his race pace has been good. And we've seen in the last few races, I think Paul Ricard is the race that stands out that he came from the midfield to finish in sixth there. So he's clearly got the racing ability. And he is someone we know over the years who he is last to the late breakers. He is someone who will make overtakes. It's just that he's not qualifying well in that car. I think that's his main problem. And I think Ricardo will have taken the time to arrest that. I think he'll have taken the time to work more with the team to really get the setup right and really get his qualifying pace sorted. So I see him improving. I do think Ferrari will turn their attention to 22 in the same way McLaren will. But I certainly think Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz are two drivers that can outdrive their cars. So I think it's going to be really interesting. But I think just because Ricardo is going to take more of a step up, I think, in the second half of the season, I think he's going to provide that support act to Lando Norris that Lando needs, I think, for McLaren to really feel more confident fighting forward. So Lando can feel like he can fight with Bottas and Perez and I think also potentially mess up kind of Mercedes and Red Bull's plans to use Bottas and Perez as foils for Hamilton and Verstappen because they've got a McLaren in the way of that. That's not going to make it easy. So... Yeah, I do think McLaren will finish third. I think Ricardo's going to have a better second half of the season. I think he'll start that here in Belgium. I'm go I'm saying now he's gonna get into Q three. He's gonna finish top six. I have every faith in Daniel Ricardo, but I'll probably be proven wrong. That's just my luck. Just very quickly before we go on to the Belgian Grand Prix more specifically, a lot of other stories around this season, of course. Esteban Ocon taking his maiden Grand Prix win for Alpine last week. Of course, Fernando Alonso and him have both signed on for next year. Alonso having a very good race out in Hungary and moving Alpine into a very secure fifth in the championship ahead of Alpha Tauri. Their points, the vast majority of their points coming from Pierre Gasly. Of course, the man Rory, we, as we've already heard in the program, has expressed, expressed quite a lot of support for. And then, of course, Aston Martin so nearly up in that fight and potentially being making out a very close fight for fifth, of course, Sebastian Vettel's disqualification from that race, leaving them at the moment on 48 points and a lot more, I think, for both drivers to do there. And, of course, behind both those teams as well, Williams, their first double points finish in a couple of years last time out in Hungary. Mr. Saturday, George Russell finally scoring a point for Williams. It's taken him two years, only two years, and much bad luck, some of his own making, some of the car's own making, finally able to do it fantastic to see Williams back up and at the front and of course Alfa Romeo and Haas two very much teams very much linked to Ferrari right at the back of the grid of course Haas wrote the season off before the start of the season so I feel the less said about that one the better Alfa Romeo a lot of questions firstly over the future Kimi Raikkonen and as well whether Antonio Giovinazzi goes into Formula 1 going forward I mean there's a lot of stories lower down the grid Rory anything else really that really sticks out to you well, the main thing that sticks out to me from what you've talked about is I don't think that Aston Martin are being talked about enough for how disappointing it's been 
for the team that was formerly Racing Point, who last season looked to be at times the fastest car on the grid. You know, you'd see a, a, a pink blur going past sometimes and it would be Lance Stroll piloting what seemed to be a faster Mercedes car. You know, I had very high expectations. They brought in four-time champion Sebastian Vettel, who's been labored with an awful Ferrari car for the last, you know, however many years. And, you know, keeping Lance Stroll, who has you know, shown that he can be a competent driver at points. Yet, you know, they've really not been spectacular. They, they've not been the story that they were last year. And, you know, for, for a team that finished just, just behind McLaren in the, in the constructors last year, they have looked like they're going to be battling more with Alpha Tauri and Alpine this year. And all I'm wondering is what happened? What happened to all the development? Was, was there just something going wrong? Was the new regulations maybe coming into play? But they just really, the change from pink to green has not been smooth for the, for the Aston Martin teams. And I think that it's really been a disappointment, especially considering the fact that I thought we might see Sebastian Vettel chasing at the top, getting top five finishes again, which obviously we had a podium in Baku. That was lovely, uh, aided in part by the break magic of Lewis Hamilton. But I really did want to see more from them this year. I think Aston Martin's fate was sealed the minute they painted their car catering green. Like Andre Lotterer, I would have just walked away. I knew where this seat, I knew where that car would have been going. But in all fairness, it has been pretty shocking because Lawrence Stroll's put so much money into that team. And we've seen flickers like Sebastian Vettel, certainly that his races in Monaco and Baku really stood out. And he did have a fantastic race in Hungary, of course, perhaps aided by the fact that his car was draining a lot more fuel than it should have been. <laughs> but they, they need more. I feel there's a lot more to come from Aston Martin, but people expect a lot from that team just because of the money that's been put in. Any other stories that you're going to be looking out for? Well, I think it's a it's a matter for a future podcast, but to me, the most intriguing story in terms of future driver standings lies within Alfa Romeo. Obviously, the driver combination of Raikkonen and Giovinazzi has been around for a few years now, you know, a couple of years, and they've not been bad. At times, they've looked serviceable, given the car they've been in is one of the three worst cars in the grid, along with Haas and Williams. But I think this might be one of the only teams who go for a double driver change next year. Obviously, I'll keep my thoughts on that private until a future date. So uh, tune in for that one, because you're not going to want to miss the, uh, the absolute mental scoop that I've got on this. But that's something to really pay attention to looking forward, especially as it might signal the end of a driving legend, Kimi Raikkonen in F1, which will be a very much a loss. He's overperformed the car too many times, shown you know his prowess on the first lap and after safety car restarts. And I think it will be a shame to, to probably see him go. But at the same time, you can't count out another return. I thought he would have been done a few years ago by now and I've been proven wrong. So willing to get proven wrong again. Kimi Raikkonen, I feel, is just the gift that keeps on giving in Formula 1. That I'm really going to miss. And I will also miss a few of the Italian Jesus memes if Giovinazzi goes as well. Of course, we will be talking about driver lineups in a future story. And there is, of course, one driver lineup that is keeping a lot of fans awake at night. Of course, the potential of George Russell being in that Mercedes seat alongside Lewis Hamilton, whether it will be him or Valtteri Bottas in that seat. Just for now, Rory. One word. Who will be in that seat next season, Russell or Bottas? Russell. I agree. George Russell will be in that Mercedes seat. We leave you that little bit of a teaser for a future episode <laughs> because now we need to move on to the Belgian Grand Prix. And of course, taking place at the wonderful circuit de Spa-Francorchamps in the Stavelo region of Belgium. It is one of the most iconic tracks on the calendar. So much you really, when you think of Spa, you think of the rundown to the tight hairpin from the start at the source, always a place where you get some pretty spectacular crashes like the crash in 2012, where Roman Grosjean got himself a race ban after colliding with Lewis Hamilton. Effectively, both cars became dodgems. Fernando Alonso and Kamui Kobayashi, alongside as well Sergio Perez, all caught up in that crash. You then have Eau Rouge, one of the most exciting corners in Formula 1, taken flat out, going then up the hill to Radion. Again, a site of some pretty daring overtakes over the years. Mark Webber's overtake on Alonso in 2011 really standing out to me. Of course, the Radion, pretty difficult zone, and one of the driver loses it at the top of the bend there. One that has had in the past, some, and in the very recent past, and some very tragic consequences, of course, our thoughts, of course, with Antoine Hubert 
Of course, Spa, so many more iconic corners as well. The Kemmel Strait, a real overtaking zone. Who can forget Mika Hakkinen's pass on Michael Schumacher going into Lecom at the end of that straight in 2000, going around the lap car, Ricardo Zonta. One, it was the overtake, one of the one that really stuck with me as a young child. It's the one I remember when the BBC took the coverage back in 2009. They kept showing that overtake and there is no reason to dispute why because that is an iconic overtake. Going down the track into Lecom, not a very exciting part of the track. It is though the part of the track where they have the only corner on the track that is not named. Do you know what that corner is called, Rory? Not named. Uh, is it what turn? turn it's turn nine. Six? Turn nine. Okay, right. It does actually have a name. Well, it's kind of got a name. It's called No Name. No Name. Which well, it's fitting, isn't it? I think is iconic. But going from No Name, you go to the iconic Puon. Two flat out left handers taking sixth, seventh gear. It's a. It's really a corner where you hold your nerve going through there. And again. A scene of no, not really many daring overtakes in the past. On the run into Puon, though, in 1998, of course, the famous crash between Michael Schumacher and David Coulthard that led to the, the Jordans, led by Damon Hill, taking that team's first race, of course, after the pretty dramatic first lap 13-car crash earlier on in that race in 1998 that saw four drivers not able to take the restart just because of the amount of damage done there. Of course, going on, from the track, you go through um, the chicane down to the Stavolo, the two right-handers at the bottom of the track, and then up to Blanchimont. Again, another fast left-hander, again, taken flat out. Again, a scene of some pretty daring overtakes over the years and also some pretty big crashes as well. Luciano Berti and Eddie Irvine's crash in 2001, one that sticks out to mind. And then into the bus stop chicane, probably one of the most iconic moments of the 2008 season, Lewis Hamilton overtaking going off the track to overtake Kimi Raikkonen giving him the place back to only then go and take Raikkonen into La Source he goes on to win the race Hamilton but is then given a controversial 25 second penalty claimed to have been giving an advantage there I say that I've just narrated the whole lap of, of Spa because there's so many iconic moments that you could just link to each individual part of the circuit Rory is there anything I've missed that really sticks out to you at Spa well, Cam, can I say that I'm offended that in your list of Eau Rouge overtakes, there was no mention of my boy Pierre Gasly in 2020 on Sergio Perez. Possibly one of the most amazing overtakes that I've seen. Gasly takes the inside line after the hairpin on, on the opening straight. Sticks with it, considering Perez at the time, you know, his feud with Esteban Ocon is very well documented and he wasn't, you know, the safest driver to be driving next to at the time. He kept his nerve against the wall, kept the inside line up a rouge flat out, an absolutely amazing move in the Alpha Towery and one that has stuck with me. Uh, and then the only other, one of the most iconic moments, I think, one of the most, you know, photogenic moments that have that has happened in recent Formula One history. Spa 2018, after Eau Rouge on the straight. Uh, Sebastian Vettel. Esteban Ocon, Sergio Perez go three wide. And here comes Sebastian Vettel to make it four. That is one of the most you amazing moments. You have watched moments. far too many Crofty memes. I have watched far too many Crofty memes. You're absolutely right. But in, in an era of F1 where going four wide is basically unheard of, I, I can't think of a time that I've watched when it's happened since then. Even going three wide is, is really, really uh, uncommon. And at that point, that was one of the most exciting things, seeing four cars nose to nose you know it's absolutely incredible and one of the best moments that i've seen in a race it is incredible i mean the camel streets camel straight so many great overtakes done on there over the years i think really i think the main overtaking spot this weekend certainly with drs as well because it'll be interesting can the cars follow through our route rouge through radion to the end of the breaking point there i think that a lot of the controversies with the current cars and being able to follow of course, next year may be a completely different story. If the cars are easier to follow, we could get even more overtakes there next year. But yes, certainly the Camel Straight going into Lecom is going to be the main overtaking point, the main point of action this weekend. Of course, something else that could be a point of action as well is strategy. Now, we've seen a lot this season that, particularly with Hamilton and Verstappen, that both teams have been making use of the one-stop and the two-stop strategies and really seeing if you can use a two-stop to gain an advantage. Of course, the one stop typically perceived as the fastest strategy, the one that gives you 
track position, but it does rely on a lot more tire management. But of course, having a two-stop gives you the ability to drive more flat out on your tires. And we've seen both with Lewis Hamilton in Spain and then Max Verstappen in France using the two-stop to their advantage to go and win the race there. Pirelli have said, so they're bringing the C2, the C3, the C4 tires. So they're bringing them their mid-range of tires pretty much. And Pirelli have said that this will give them a very interesting mix of strategies. They're expecting two stops. Both Gasly and Perez used two stops to make late charges through the fields last year and finish in higher positions than they were before. So do you think in seeing how Mercedes and Red Bull have done this this year, Rory, I think there's going to be a two-stop strategy amongst them potentially here, especially with the overtaking opportunities this track affords. I think I'd agree with you there, Cam. I think it's very much at times this season seemed like a game of 5D chess between Mercedes and Red Bull strategists. You know, they're both trying to second second guess what the other team is going to do and try and get that critical edge in the pit stops above the other team. I think the two-stop would be a very safe bet considering how the drivers have managed to manage their tyres in previous uh, previous rounds. And of course, you know, as soon as you mentioned Sergio Perez, you know what's going to get brought up, and that's his ability to, to make tyres last. I think if they have to, to have Perez on an alternate strategy to Verstappen in order to prioritise the latter, I think that might be something that they definitely go for. Absolutely. I think that is going to be, and we've seen the way that Perez has really used his tyres and his ability to manage tyres to Red Bull's advantage, Monaco being the obvious example. Of course, the thing though with Monaco, you can't overtake on that track. With Spa, there are plenty of overtaking opportunities. So I don't know. It's going to be really interesting. And I think just seeing, I think Pirelli are clearly optimistic. So I think that's, I think, a good indicator there. Of course, one thing that may throw this into complete jeopardy is the tendency for the Spa track located high up in the Eiffel Mountains to rain. And this year, we've we've had a lot of predictions for wet races this year, and a lot of it not come true. But with the latest weather forecast, and say we're recording this on Thursday evening to go out on the Saturday of the race weekend, we have been forecasted three wet days on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. A little bit of rain always throws a race, always spices things up a bit, throws a bit of things up into the air. Who do you think will benefit from a wet race at Spa? Well, you've got to look at the, the, the typical drivers who are good in the wet. Well, one, the name that comes to my mind immediately is Fernando Alonso. Going into this season, I wouldn't have penalised anybody for thinking that the decision to bring Fernando Alonso back to Formula One is a bad decision. You know, considering he's been out the sport for a few years, he's getting on, you know, very much getting on. And the fact that, you know, the Alpine Driver Academy is one of the more talent-filled ones in the F1 grid right now. But... I think in the rain, he's very, very good at managing the car. He's very good at getting results from the car. And I think that might benefit him. In terms of the front markers, I think that you've got the experience of, of Hamilton in the rain. You know, it, it's it's basically like another day's work for Lewis Hamilton at this point. Again, he is the closest that we'll get to the, the F1 cyborg, as we'll ever see. Uh, you know, you can never bet against him. And, you know, he has on occasion slipped up, but I wouldn't put any money against Lewis Hamilton. I think it will be the edge on him if it does come to that. And we have seen some pretty disgusting videos from Spa recently. I've seen the the straight going up to Eau Rouge looking basically like a whitewater rafting, uh, you know, venue. So, you know, let, let's hope for conditions a little bit better than that, but it, it should make for a very interesting outcome. And the thing is with rain is that we can predict all we want. Realistically, it is just throwing that tiny little seed of uncertainty into the event. And so it's going to be a fascinating race to watch if that does happen. And of course, with Spa as well, being seven kilometers long, you have a track where it could be raining in one part of the circuit and absolutely bone dry, and particularly if it's in the last couple laps. I mean, the 2008 race is the embodiment of this rain falling in the last few laps of the race. Do you make that change onto intermediate tires or do you stay out on the dries? 2008, of course, we saw a few drivers, Nick Heidfeld, and Fernando Alonso, two drivers go on to the intermediates from fourth and fifth. And Sebastian Bourdais stay out on the dry tyres. And there is this tra- absolutely tragic clip of Bourdais starting that final lap in third and then just getting overtaken by Heidfeld, Alonso, Kubica, every driver behind him who was on intermediates. And he finishes the race in eighth. And I had never felt for a man as much as until I'd seen that Bourdais video. And from from literally nearly a maiden podium 
to nearly being out of the points. That was that was just how much the weather can vary at Spa and how much that can really affect a car's pace. So that is certainly going to be interesting. Of course, there's one big prediction we have to make, and that is who we think is going to be on the podium this weekend, who we think is going to win the race. So, Rory, who do you think will be on the podium at Spa this weekend? Now, you can call me biased all you want, Cam. But I have an opinion and I will stick to it. And I think that Max Verstappen is not going to stand for any more bad luck. And he is going to take things into his own hands and take home the win at the Spa Grand Prix in 2021. I think that him seeing his lead, his, again, once substantial lead over Lewis Hamilton diminish absolutely incredibly and then ultimately ending up second now, I think that is going to be the fire that's lit underneath him. If he ever needs a fire, it's now. Because the Red Bull car has, since he's been driving in it to the style that he's been driving, has never looked as good as it is now. And he needs to capitalise on it now. So that's my choice for, for the race win. And I'll stick by that. Number two, when I think about Spa, and I think about how long it is, I think about the, the possible endurance capacity of it. I think about tyre management. And like I said, when I think about tyre management, I think of one man, Sergio Perez in the second Red Bull. It's going to be a Red Bull 1-2 finish. You heard it here first. Sergio Perez is going to take home second, maybe on a one-stop, maybe doing some absolutely incredible stuff we've never seen before in the Pirellis, despite their you know uncertain nature, as we see in the Pirelli, isn't always the most reliable tyre, even when they should have life left in them, as Max Verstappen would tell you after his experience in Baku. But then P3, again, I can't bet too heavily against Lewis Hamilton. So P3 Lewis Hamilton, again, he's going to have even more incentive now to add to his championship total. I think that that's going to be something that is very much in his mind and it's very much possible going into this race as the championship leader. Uh, so I think it all depends who gets ahead at the start. I think whoever starts the you know lap three, four, five, pending weather is going to be the car that wins. And I think that's going to be Max Verstappen, followed by Sergio Perez, followed by Lewis Hamilton, Sir Lewis Hamilton. I am going to differ with you totally on that. <laughs> I think Lewis Hamilton's going to come out on list. top. I think the weather, I think firstly a wet race, Lewis Hamilton is always the driver you bet on on a wet race. I do think it's going to rain this weekend. But even if it doesn't, Lewis has got a fantastic record around Spa. He is someone who, if he needs to make the overtakes, if he does go into the two-stop strategy, he will. But I, and I also think he's someone who I think will get that qualifying lap out. That qualifying lap is so crucial at Spa just to give you that advantage. So... I think he'll take pole position. I think he'll be able to hold off for Stappen because the the straight line speed updates that Mercedes have done, I think will benefit him there. And I think once he gets out front, he'll just hold himself out front for that race, regardless of the weather. So I've got Lewis Hamilton winning that race. I think it'll be close to Max Verstappen. I think Verstappen's going to, of course, buoyed on by the many, many Dutch fans that will be coming to Spa. I think that will really buoy him on. I just don't think he'll nail it as much as Lewis Hamilton will in the qualifying lap. And I do think at times this season, I think apart from Paul Ricard aside, I don't think Red Bull are as adventurous with the strategies of Mercedes have been. And I think this could be a race where that could haunt them, where there's so many potential overtaking opportunities that could come from doing alternate strategies. And I feel that that's going to also play against Verstappen. So I've got Hamilton going to win the race, Max Verstappen in second. And then coming in third... I have got my driver of the season so far. I think Lando, I think firstly, has a fantastic record. I think not only this season, but at Spa historically as well. He's someone who being half Belgian as well will have a lot of support, which I think will be something that galvanizes him. But I think more importantly, I feel he's going to really use, I think firstly, the Mercedes engine, I think is an engine that always likes straight line speed. You need to have a bit of that at Spa. I think he's going to really benefit from that. But I think he's also going to be daring. He's going to be bullshit. I feel with Bottas, with Perez, if he needs to make those moves, he's going to take the risks and he's going to pull them off. And I just think the way that we've seen him this season in that conversation, he deserves to be included with Mercedes and the Red Bulls. And I think this is going to be another race where he's going to show just how good he is. And I think to do it at Spa will be the most impressive I think I've ever seen Lando Norris. So I'm going Lewis Hamilton first, Max Verstappen in second, Lando Norris coming home in third. Rory, any other talking points for this weekend? Well, I'd love to see your prediction come through in, in terms of Lando Norris, of course, making his 50th F1 start this weekend. 
it doesn't feel like that long to be honest it feels like he's he's still a little little whippersnapper in an f1 car but <laughs> yeah I, I think that's gonna be a very interesting thing to monitor is how how well he does and furthermore how well daniel ricardo does i think this might be the race that sets the tone for if he is going to get his leg up because having a three-week break if there was any, ever a point that he was going to make some kind of leap forward it would be now daniel ricardo has stepped into an F1 simulator for the first time in his career, despite previously swearing against it. And, you know, if anything's going to help him out, the preparation over this last three periods is going to be it. And if he can't get it right now, I honestly don't know how long, you know, we can keep hoping that he'll be the same Daniel Ricciardo that we used to know in, in, in Red Bull. And we saw at times in Renault, but not often. So that's definitely something that I'll keep an eye on this weekend as well. Further to that, looking at the standings today, I've realized something quite petrifying, which is that besides the cars from the three bat markers, Williams, Haas, and Alfa Romeo, the car that comes in next in the standings is the Aston Martin of Lance Stroll, who's kind of sitting on 18 points equal with F1 rookie Yuki Tsunoda, which is something quite surprising to me because I, I honestly thought he was having a, a sort of mid, mid-table season, you know, not, not too bad, not making any headlines at the same time, but still doing all right. But he's 12 points behind Sebastian Vettel, who I believe is on 30. And again, it's a case of looking at the driver lineup, looking at whether Aston Martin can develop as much as they hope they will in the latter half of the season. Is it time to finally consider whether big guy Lawrence Stroll should make the right decision for the team and possibly look elsewhere for a driver for his team. Because right now, the car isn't giving what it's supposed to give. But I would argue also Lance Stroll is not giving what he's supposed to give. Despite looking very good at points this season, he has been inconsistent with, with Sebastian Vessel as well, admittedly. It might be a question of whether the car can make the step, but that's just something that I'll keep an eye on as well. I think with with that, I, I, just, don't, I just don't see Lawrence Stroll getting rid of his own son. I feel the minute that Lawrence Stroll put him in the car in 2019 instead of keeping Esteban Ocon in the racing point, I feel was the moment I think we got to slightly see where Lawrence Stroll's loyalties lied with his son. That's a guaranteed seat as long as Lance wants it. So I, I just don't see that happening. And I do agree that for Aston Martin to go forward, they may need to consider getting rid of him because Sebastian Vettel... I don't think there should be any doubts over his seat in the team, especially after some of the performances he's put in this season. But yeah, Lance Stroll needs that breakthrough. We've not had it. And I don't think, I think the time is running out for him to have that breakthrough. I think just one talking point from me, Williams getting their first double points score in Hungary. Is this going to be the start of a more consistent challenge going forward for Williams, particularly with George Russell? Can he turn this into a more consistent point scoring record in the second half of the season and overturn a lot of the bad luck he's had previously because if he can I don't think there's any greater justification for him to be in that Mercedes seat next season and a Hamilton Russell partnership at Mercedes in 2022 that is very exciting I think there's no other words to describe that well Rory thank you so much for coming on the armchair f1 podcast today it's been fantastic to have you on our first episode. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And I hope to be back on on many more in the future. I've really enjoyed myself. I can't wait to do more of these. And yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for being a great host. Thank you very much, Rory. And thank you as well for listening to the first episode of the Armchair F1 podcast. As David Croft would say, hopefully he hasn't copyrighted it. It's lights out and away we go on the start of really something, as I said earlier on, I've been looking to do for so many years. Please stay in touch, follow the social medias, keep up to date with everything that we'll be putting out over the coming weeks, months and years. And hopefully you'll listen to our future episodes as well. I'm really excited for all of the future content that's going to be coming out. And it's great to have you listening to us. So thank you so much for listening. And I will leave you with this because motorsport, and the thing about motorsport is that there's so many unsung heroes that have contributed to it that you don't often hear about. And over the past month, we've sadly lost two people who really embody that. And I just quickly wanted to finish the show today by paying tribute to them. Firstly, Rob Foote, a volunteer marshal. Marshals, the most important people at any circuit, keeping the drivers safe. And sadly, we lost Rob Foote, a volunteer marshal at Brands Hatch at the end of July. And again, motorsport is always dangerous. It's there's something that you get on the ticket for every race, but it does really hit home, of course, for his family, for his friends, for everyone 
who knew him, we have a Just Giving page was set up by a W Series driver, Alice Powell, in his memory. That currently stands at £57,000. And it's a real reflection of the work that Marshalls do to keep drivers and fans safe and really contribute to race weekends moving smoothly. So our condolences, of course, go out to Robert and the rest of his family and also to Natalie Maye. And in, in many ways, it's fitting that the Grand Prix, after her death, we go to the track that she has been the director of since July 2016. And... A lot of the work that she has done over the last couple of years to modernise Spa, we've had, we mentioned earlier, the Antoine Hubert's tragic accident a couple of years ago. Her response to that in terms of redeveloping the circuit, bringing the safety standards up. Last year, Spa committed 80 million euros to a 10-year redevelopment plan that would see new gravel traps installed across the track to hopefully slow the cars down before they make impacts in the wall, to make it safer for spectators with new grandstands and complete renovations there and also potentially make the track safer for motorcycle racing to take place at Spa as well. Natalie Maia was responsible for so much of the brilliant future that Spa has ahead and her loss is a massive one to the whole of the motorsport family. And so to both Rob Foot, to Natalie Maia, to their friends, to their family, Rest in peace. You will be sorely missed. Thank you very much for listening.